when I talk to school groups especially and they come up and speak to you afterwards and they ask you all these really cool questions you can see their minds thinking and they then say to you you know I want to be like you and I want to study what you do and I never thought that you could do such cool stuff at uni or I didn't think researchers could be like that or scientists look like that it's it's quite remarkable Welcome to UQ Changemakers, a podcast series where we interview some of the most influential and inspiring members of the UQ community. My name is Belinda McDougall. And I'm Katie Rowney. In this episode, we chat with PhD student and snake venom researcher Jordan DeBono. Jordan is investigating the impact of snake venom on the blood system in UQ's Venom Evolution Lab and in 2017 was the winner of Queensland Women in STEM People's Choice Award. Jordan, welcome. Hi. (laughs) Now, Jordan, your interest in animals, particularly snakes, did that start as a child? Um, Animals, yes. Snakes, no. So I grew up on um, in northern New South Wales, uh, in in the country. So on a property about ten acres, and I was surrounded by uh, wildlife and nature, and I pretty much run amok every afternoon and every weekend, just doing my own thing. Um, And I think that that spurred that curiosity about the world around us and what we now know as biodiversity but as a kid it's just anything and everything Uh, there was always snakes around but it wasn't like it had struck up a keen interest and I was like yes that's what I'm going to study at uni Um, I just really took an interest in science in school and that one thing led to another and I mean if you had have said to me 10 years ago I'd be working on snake venom for research and um, drug development and design, I would have been like, no, no way. So how did they enter your life? I started volunteering actually six years ago. Facebook reminded me of that one today. Um, <laughs> started volunteering in the uh, Venom Evolution Laboratory in, um, in Brian Fry's lab, just feeding centipedes and scorpions and um, spiders or anything that we had alive at the time. And taking on that volunteer uh, position then led on to a summer research research project which was on snake venom and learning about the snake venom um, I then learned about the actual organism the snakes and then that's how I then got involved with snakes in particular. So obviously there's always been a fascination with creepy crawlies though. Yeah definitely definitely. Um, I think I'm the black sheep in my family when it comes to these sorts of things I'm not one to shy away. Um, I'd ra- much rather take it head on and get involved with it, <laughs> which helps sometimes. What are you studying here at UQ and what's the ultimate goal of your PhD? That is a good question. I have to ask <laughs> myself that daily, <laughs> keep myself on track. Um, but in a nutshell, I study the snake venom from um, Asian pit vipers in particular. So none of my species are Australian. And I study um, a couple of species from Africa, which are a different family of snakes. And I look at the effects that their venom has on our blood. So does it clot our blood or does it prevent our blood from clotting? And then I do a whole heap of tests and things like that to investigate that further and then put the evolutionary spin on it. So where do these toxins come from? Why, why have they evolved to be the way they are? And how can we as scientists use that for um, research and by discovery implications, which would potentially, hopefully, lead on to improved therapeutics and drug design. 
Um, I particularly like science communication at the moment, um, so I'm doing a lot of that on the side of my PhD um, and getting involved in things like this, like podcasts or radio interviews, and trying to bridge that gap between scientists and researchers and the lay audience or people who aren't necessarily involved in what we do and showcasing why it's important and, and why we should um, respect them. A lot of it comes down to respect and saying that even though this species may be able to kill you, it can save your life potentially. So there are a lot of different layers to what you're trying to learn and what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. Could you walk me through some of the kind of experiments you might run or your interactions with these venomous creatures that you must be doing day to day as part of your research? Yeah, um, I can give you what I was doing like half an hour ago. Um, So I was looking at a specific part of the cascade. Um, The cascade is what we use to clot our blood. So it's like a domino effect. You activate one thing and then that cascades all the way down until you get that solid blood clot which is what you want to happen. The second last step of that is called fibrinogen. And fibrinogen is um, a set of proteins that are sort of wrapped in together and thrombin cleaves fibrinogen to make fibrin strands, which is just the, the matrix which causes that clot. So the venoms that I'm working on at the moment, one little group called protobothrops, um, they're Asian pit vipers, which are found throughout Jap- the Japanese archipelago and Taiwan, China, um, places like that. Their venom specifically acts on fibrinogen, this one active site, but they do it in a very broad way. So what I was looking at, um, I was putting different um, amounts of venom on uh, fibrinogen and having a look at how long does it take for that to actually end up in a clot. Specifically speaking, we have a robot that does that um, for us, so I load the samples. I put everything that in it that needs to um, that it needs to do its thing, and then it goes along and um, makes the different dilutions, and it measures the clot formation in real time. So, in a sense, it should be quite quick and easy, um, but you always run into trouble. Um, fun fact: I was doing this 12 months ago and repeating it today. So, it's um, it can get a little bit tedious, but the end result is that you come out with these really cool novel results and you know that you're the only one that's done this and your paper or your research is eventually going to get published and other scientists are going to read that. So for me, I think that's really cool because I have to remind myself that I'm actually a scientist and I'm actually doing real research and there are other scientists out there that are reading my stuff, but I still feel as though I'm like a second year, a second year student at UQ. It's I don't know. It's it's weird. It's a weird feeling. It's one of those sort of imposter syndrome effects, I think. You look specifically at two different types of snakes. Can you tell me why you picked them and give us a bit of a description for people that aren't familiar with those snakes? Yeah. So broadly speaking, I look at two entirely different families of snakes. Um, none of these snakes occur in Australia. The ones that are in Australia that are venomous are known as the lapids, and they are defined as snakes that have... Uh, front fangs that are fixed so they don't move Um, and every venomous snake in Australia is an elapid with the exception of one or two. The ones that I look at are vipers or that belong to the family Viperidae and more specifically speaking um, pit vipers which are the subfamily Crotalinae. So pit vipers are snakes that um, are ambush predators so they sit and wait 
and they have fangs that are at the front but they can move independently of each other and they're a lot larger than the elapid fangs and why I chose them I was working on vipers in my undergrad just in summer research projects and um, on the side and I was actually working on pit vipers that were found in America Um, Some of the species I'm working on in my PhD, I already had the venom for, um, but I hadn't done a lot of investigative work with them. The ones from from Colubridae, uh, the rear fanged or non-front fanged snakes, I, um, I had those because I'd actually done rear fanged snake work in my honors project. But to complicate things even more, Um, I was looking at something completely different with them. Uh, So in my honours project, I was looking at toxins that affect our nervous system, but now I'm looking at toxins that affect our blood system. So completely completely different kettle of fish, completely different types of investigative um, approaches and experiments, completely different species. Um, They're not even related to each other. So I suppose that's kind of why I'm looking at it, but... I was I was given them and someone was already working on Australian snakes and I like the fact that there's not been much work done on these species so everything that I'm doing is novel and new so it almost seems like to me you went Australia's got a whole heap of really cool and really venomous snakes um, but I'm going to go for these ones that are even more bizarre and ambush and have movable fangs and like to chew their victims (laughs) it just sounds like you went this is extreme I'm going to turn up the volume a little bit a lot of work has been done on Australian species I mean there's still a lot left to to learn and investigate but there is a lot of research out there Um, and Australia has really really good anti-venom existing for these species whereas the ones that I am working on they either don't have anti-venom or the antivenom that's being used is not ideal or it doesn't work very effectively. Um, so that's another reason, a good reason why I'm doing what I'm doing to fill in those knowledge gaps that exist. So antivenom is just one little part of it. By knowing the, the different components of the venom, so I'll just say ingredients, um, we can have um, better shaped antivenoms. So a lot of the antivenoms um, that exist are monovalent, so one, for one specific snake. But the, the issue with that is that you can only use it for that type of snake. Um, polyvalent antivenoms, which use um, a multi, a multi, multiple groups of um, snake venom in the one, they're, they're effective for snakes that occupy similar regions or um, closely related to each other, but then that can also get very complicated. Um, we've recently found that snakes of the same species living in different areas can have different venom types. So that's going back to that evolutionary, those evolutionary pressures. Even though you're the exact same species, you might be living over the mountain range or on a different island and your venom composition is different to the other snake. So the antivenom that might be reared on one type of snake from one type of region isn't going to work if you're bitten by the other snake, even though you're the same species. So that complicates things hugely. Um, the, the issue with that, though, is a lot of these cases or a lot of the people that are being bitten are in third world countries or low socioeconomic areas 
and the funding for anti-venom research isn't there. And then even if we are able to get the anti-venom made, people can't buy it and people the the governments aren't going to supply it or the hospitals aren't going to stock it or people won't even use hospitals. So it comes back to education at the same time. So it's it's a multitude, it's a multi multi facet sort of approach. So there's venom awareness, venom bite awareness in these sorts of regions. Um, that's I think that's another reason why I chose the snakes that I have chosen because a lot of these bite cases, a lot of these victims are bitten by these snakes in these sort of low socioeconomic regions. Um, and a lot of them, they might not necessarily die, but then they can't work. So that's an economic burden on that type of, um, from that snake bite as well. So the other side of it is for um, Western medicine, broadly speaking. So um, diabetic medication, preventive stroke medication, um, if you're in surgery and you're bleeding out, you need something that clots the blood really quickly. All these sorts of things can be modelled off snake venom toxins. So we say snake venom can be used for drug design and development, but it's just the one specific part of it. So it's not the whole venom, it's just one part of it. And my job is to find which one, which part of it it is. This research is just part of the fascinating work being done at UQ's Venom Evolution Lab. To learn more, we spoke with Lab Supervisor Associate Professor Brian Fry about the different areas of research and opportunities available to PhD students like Jordan. When you think of snakes, you know, people say, oh, the only good snake is a dead snake. Well, actually, the only good snake is a live snake because they're a source of novel compounds that, first off, because they're sort of the ultimate smart weapon, they can immediately teach us an incredible amount about how the human body works. So just as probes, we can learn so much about our, how our body functions because of these weapons that are so incredibly accurate yet potent in their devastation. So we, you know, we can put a little bit in, see what happens, then that tells us more about how our blood works or how our nerves function. But then moving beyond that, in addition to them giving us that basic knowledge that is the foundation for all sorts of physiological discoveries, including drug development, some of these can be modified and have been modified into life-saving medications. So if you know of anybody, for example, who takes high blood pressure medication, odds are they're taking captopril or one of its derivatives. That's a modified snake toxin. It was developed 40 years ago, remains today a $10 billion a year market. It's been one of the top 20 drugs of all time up there with aspirin, that its medical importance cannot be overstated. It has saved countless lives while making a lot of people a lot of money. And that's a good example of why we need to conserve all of nature. With the work that we do here, with the single large pile of high quality data that we generate with these various studies, it has multiple levels of interpretation. First off is the evolutionary side of it, where we're all complete geeks about these kinds of animals and we're fascinated with them and we want to just find out more about them to satisfy this childlike curiosity that we have. But if you're going to go for drug design and discovery, if you're not using evolution as part of your search strategy, you're throwing darts at a board but you're in a pitch black room. So by looking at which venoms have become radically different or where the ecological and biodiversity hotspots are, 
those are naturally where your most divergent toxins are going to come from, and those are going to be the ones most likely to have a new and interesting activity. For example, if you want to find something new and wonderful to, for drug design development, the best place to look is in an, an unusual venom. Well, evolution you know, and basic studies you know, around that will tell you where those kinds of unusual venoms are, as opposed to looking at ground like a tiger snake that's already been intensively raked for a very long time. So with our basic evolutionary studies, it informs about clinical treatment where we can we map over antivenom efficiency over the evolutionary tree of the animals and show where the, you know, the problems are and, and which groups of snakes are better or worse neutralized by a particular antivenom. But then with this basic profiling the venom, we may see very unusual activities. Like with one of the snakes we're working with, the long-glanded coral snake has venom glands that go about 25% the length of its body. Very unusual snake, but also has a very unusual venom, where it's the only of the snake venoms that turns on the nerves rather than turning them off like a typical snake. Most snakes make you go limp, sort of like a heroin overdose. These ones are like you're dying of a meth overdose. All your muscles are rigid because you're releasing all your neurotransmitter. Well, with this particular venom, one of the studies we're doing is reconstructing in the lab as a model system for a muscular dystrophy, where there's a type of muscular dystrophy where people keep flexing their muscles involuntarily, and then that breaks the muscles down just from overuse. Well, now we have a probe that allow us to turn, keep turning those muscle fibers on over and over and over and over again, and then that'll allow us, so that recreates that myotonic dystrophy state and allows us to understand the pathology a bit better with it as a modal system. So that's a good example of an unusual venom having a very interesting use. So with the students that I have in the lab, they're working on a myriad of projects, from cobras to leeches to ticks, so anything with venom we're looking at. And UQ has a very unusual density of venom researchers. In fact, it has one of, if not the highest concentration in the world, if you look at the number of groups spread across campus. And that's great because we have a lot of mutually complementary skills. Like in my lab, we do a lot of blood testing. People like Irina Vetter does a lot of work on pain receptors. And all these venoms are going to be hitting myriad of targets to more or less you know, potency. So there's a huge opportunity at UQ that's quite unusual that way from basic evolution studies all the way to very re refined biochemical structure function kind of studies and everything in between. With my particular students, I select for by passion, you know, because if people are really passionate about what they're doing, they're going to work that much harder. And scientific success is like biological success, where incremental differences over a very long period become quite appreciable. So in the case of someone who's passionate, they're going to work a little longer each day. They'll come in the occasional weekend. Well, that's cumulatively going to have a big effect. Now, you work with um, Associate Professor Brian Fry. He's your mentor. Mm. He's quite renowned for his research as well. Yeah, so Brian's um, an incredible supervisor. You can come in and be having the worst day and you don't care anymore and he can just pick you up and motivate you and just sort of spew out all that passion back onto you and you're like, yeah, ready to go again. So he um, he's brilliantly minded. Um, he has such 
an amazing brain and how it works um, with this sort of content. His career is quite remarkable in terms of where he's come from and and the passion that drives his career. And uh, he doesn't just do uh, research in the lab. He's out there with the media and um, the public and pushing this research and showcasing how important it is. So I think finding him quite early on in my undergrad was quite important. Um, It was by sheer luck, uh, just being at the right place at the right time. And it's developed on from there. So we've been quite closely um, um, related with each other for the past six years. I mean, I've been in his lab for the past six years um, and full time for the past four years. You make him sound like a spitting cobra of positivity. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. Um, Positivity towards this type of research, yeah. But that's his passion. That's what he lives for. And he'll do anything and everything to make sure that this research is fulfilled and that this lab is in existence and that students like myself keep coming through and doing this research because it is important. As a student, what kind of opportunities do you have to go out in the field or experience these snakes that you're researching firsthand? So up until last year, middle of last year, I'd actually never seen any of the snakes that I work on in real life. We don't have them in Australia. We're not allowed to have exotic species in Australia. So I was given the opportunity to speak at three international conferences, two of them in Europe. So the first one was in Berlin and the second one was at Oxford University in London, uh, in England. And in between that, I worked at, um, at a hospital in Leiden in Holland. And my supervisor, he has a lot of contacts worldwide. And I was able to actually go to labs over there um, and other people's private collections as well and actually see the snakes that I work on firsthand. So in Europe, anything goes. You can have whatever you want whenever you want. Um, Those rules and regulations are slowly changing, but then nowhere near as tight and rigorous as Australia. So it's good and bad, but for me, I was, I was actually really excited. It was, it was quite surprising actually, because I've only ever seen the photos of the species I work on, on Google images and things like that. And to actually see them in real life, obviously I didn't pick them up or touch them because I know exactly how deadly they are and there's no (laughs) anti-venom anywhere anywhere close by but um yeah it was it was quite remarkable I am I was quite surprised with two of the species that I was working on I thought they were going to be a lot bigger than they were um so I can it just sort of puts it into perspective how easy it would be to be bitten by one of these snakes you know if you're out picking coffee beans or in the rice paddies or you know just hanging around at home um a lot that's where a lot of these bites um occur yeah so that's that's one opportunity i was given um the other opportunities were to speak at these international conferences among other people in my field which was very daunting i'm just a little phd student from uq and going out in the big bad world but it was awesome and especially as a young female scientist up against or you know speaking beside professors in the field that are you know 60 70 years old and they know anything and everything it was quite remarkable Um, and for them to sit there and listen to what you have to say and for you to be able to communicate your science and what you're bringing from UQ was incredible and I got to do that three times last year so incorporating both sides of the 
the fence, I suppose. So going to where the people are being um, bitten and having a look at their, you know, their economic um, displacement and the loss of people in their families and going to those villages or wherever it is that they're going and educating the people, but then also bringing the scientists in and bringing the real research. So it's combining the Western and Eastern medicines, I suppose. Um, Because a lot, I mean, one of my species in Africa, a lot of the people that are bitten or it has been shown that they would much rather go to witch doctors than spend four hours travelling to the hospital. So that that's that's the reality of it. So you can spend all of this time and money and efforts trying to produce these antivenoms or trying to um, produce this research, but then you've got to be able to actually educate the people who need it the most. So, um, yeah, that was amazing. You spoke earlier about imposter syndrome, which is something that we see a lot of people struggle with, especially women in science. Now, you've won a 2017 Queensland Women in STEM People's Choice Award, which must be a really nice boost to your confidence there. But do you still struggle with that kind of thing? Definitely. Uh, When people say that I'm an expert... I'm definitely not an expert. I know most of what I'm doing in my PhD and just kind of fluke the rest. But um, yeah, I it is it's hard to get my head around, I suppose, because I've been studying or I've been a student on student wages or trying to get student discounts for the past however many years. Um, and this is just what I do. This is just my day to day. This is just what I've chosen and ended up doing and um when people when I tell them what I do and I see their face and their reaction they're like oh wow that's so amazing but it's I'm like oh yeah it is actually pretty cool like it brings you back to reality um and it it reminds you why it reminds me why I started in this and why I pushed so hard to stay in the lab and push so hard to get the grades that I could to be able to do a PhD um but yeah, when, when I have school, when I talk to school groups especially and they come up and speak to you afterwards and they ask you all these really cool questions and um, they, you can see their minds thinking and they then say to you, you know, I want to be like you and I want to study what you do and I never thought that you could do such cool stuff at uni or I didn't think you could be... Um, like I didn't think researchers could be like that or scientists look like that type thing. It's it's quite remarkable. But yeah, the imposter syndrome, it's um, it, it comes up. It rears its head every now and then, but definitely since last year kicked off um, after winning that competition or even just before entering. I never thought that I'd win. I just entered and I was just in it for the, the training day really and then ended up winning and that took me on my journey for last year, which was, it took, it took me all over the world, which was incredible. Um, and it's just continued on from there. So speaking to radio stations or podcasts or the school groups that I do regularly um, is, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, fascinating. I really, really enjoy it. Did you face any barriers as a woman wanting to pursue this field of not just science, but then going that step further to an area that we typically don't associate with women, things like snakes and spiders and venom? Um, not initially. I have always sort of had the the attitude of I'll do what I want to do. Um, no one can really stop me. 
So if someone was to come up to me and say, oh, you can't do that or that's not for you, then that would just spur me on to prove them wrong. So I didn't have a barrier in that sort of sense. And I think also with my supervisor, there was no, oh, you're male, you're female, or you've got this grade or you've got this grade. Everyone's equal. And if you're passionate and enthusiastic about what it is that you're researching or what it is that you're studying, then that's going to pay off in the end. So I think having Brian um, mentoring me early on, it, it there was no no sort of barrier in that way. It only was until I started talking to other colleagues in other labs or other universities that that really become apparent. And then with snakes and spiders and the creepy crawlies, I think... Um, there's this stereotype or associated with this field or this discipline that it's um, that you know people who uh, are weird or um, there's they're socially awkward or um, you know they're they're men or you know, there's always that strange stereotype and then I'll be giving a demonstration or a presentation and people are like oh okay I didn't think that you could do that and combine both disciplines so I also really enjoy that side of things and breaking down those stereotypes and surprising people as well. The snakes you're studying sound fascinating, a little bit scary and potentially deadly, but how do they compare to our Australian snakes? Just how dangerous are they? So it's a good question. I do get asked this quite often. The snakes in Australia are deadly in their own right. Um, A lot of people gauge deadliness by how many people it can kill or how quickly it can kill a human. So those snakes are the ones that um, they have a diet mainly consisting of mammals, so rats or mice or um, other small mammals that they might interact with. And so their venom is designed to affect a mammal's circulatory system. And we're mammals as well. So that's why we also get that sort of effect. The snakes that um, feed on amphibians or other reptiles are also just as deadly, but we don't see that in us. We might get a bit of swelling or we might be a bit sick, but they're not going to kill us. Um, A good example of that is a red-bellied black snake. They have a diet mainly consisting of amphibians and, and lizards. So their venom, although it's very deadly towards an amphibian or a, or a lizard, is not quite as deadly to us. Um, so the snakes that I that I work on, um, they they have a diet mainly consisting of birds, um, but can also feed on mammals. So it's it's a more generalized um, diet. So that's why we do also feel that effect. Um, so they are deadly towards us. The other thing, um, the other sort of box that you have to tick is where are these people living and how close are they toward in like getting um, medical help. So in Australia, we're very fortunate. We have a really good healthcare system. We're never too far away from a hospital and we've always got antivenom on hand and people who know how to actually give you the antivenom. The snakes that I work on, people don't live near hospitals. People don't have access to this type of healthcare. So you do see a lot more, um, you do see a higher mortality rate. 
People often use terms like most venomous, deadliest, or even most poisonous interchangeably, but they're three very different things. Can you tell me the difference between something that's poisonous and something that is venomous? Yes. So venom uh, has to be inflicted via a wound. So um, either a snake would bite you or, um, for example, like a spitting cobra, your eyes are an open um, gateway into your body. Um, or if you had a, a cut, an existing cut, and the venom got into that cut, that's also classified as a as an open wound. But more specifically speaking, things like stingrays or ants, wasps, and bees, uh, snakes, spiders, they've all got a venomous apparatus that will inject the venom into you. Um, so poison, if you ingest that, that's going to have its effects um, the molecules within venom versus poison are a lot smaller um, in poisons versus venoms. So they're able to cl- cross the barrier a lot easier. That's the, I suppose, the biological <laughs> answer to that. But yeah, venom, you can, um, you can have a bath in venom, but you can't have a bath in poison. Do you have a favourite snake? Ooh. Um, yes. My pet snake was the Woma. <laughs> you have a pet snake? <laughs> yeah. He's um he's a Woma python, which is uh, Australian, and they're found out near Uluru. Uh, so he's a central desert species. Um, and, yeah, his name's Wes. And sometimes I have Woma Wednesdays, and I bring him into uni. <laughs> okay, that is amazing. <laughs> and I think he needs to stop by our office. Yeah. So... Is Wes venomous? No, no, no. He's a python. So pythons aren't venomous, um, but he can eat venomous snakes um, in the wild. He, he's captive red, so he, uh, he didn't come from the wild, but his um, relatives can. They do have the potential to. Same with black-headed pythons. They're very unique in that they can also eat um, venomous reptiles. Okay, well, now we're going to close the episode with a short segment that we call Spare Change, in which we get to know you a little bit better with some rapid-fire questions. Are you ready? Yeah. (laughs) You sound a bit... (laughs) Well, here we go anyway. Uh, What's the one fact that listeners wouldn't know about you? I love country music and I play AFL. So what country and western singer is your favourite? Dustin Lynch. I saw him recently at CMC... Um, and oh, I never thought I'd get like this over anyone, but he is incredible. Fan girl. girl. <laughs> yes. So what's the one question you're sick of being asked? Have I ever been bitten by a snake? Which is probably your next question. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a no, I've never been bitten by a snake. If you could go back in time by 10 years, you'd only be a whippersnapper, but um, what advice would you give your younger self? So 10 years, I would have been 16 and I was heavily involved in triathlon at the time. I wanted to go to the Olympics for triathlon. I've tried every sport under the sun. Um, And I would say it's all going to be okay. It'll all work out in the end. Stop stressing. But I'll probably give myself that same advice in 10 years time and say, stop stressing. It's all going to be fine. But that's just what I do. So who or what has been your biggest influence in life? Good question. Um, I think it would probably be 
science definitely broadly speaking that has influenced and shaped every part of my life um, and everything that I've been interested in so it's taken me overseas it's brought me to UQ I have met some incredible people through science um, and that's what I study that's what I do day to day now if you had to choose a piece of music that would best describe you which song would you play Yes, I pondered over this question, or this answer, for a very long time. Um, I think maybe David Nail, whatever she's got, um, or um, Party in the USA by Miley Cyrus. Yes. <laughs> I, I know they're both sort of country songs, but I think the the deep message in those songs is that you just rock to your own beat and you just do what you want and you own it which I hopefully will portray and hopefully someone would pick those sorts of similar songs um but yeah I know every word for both those songs which also helps as well (laughs) so that's the end of another episode of UQ Changemakers if you want to learn more about Venom Research at UQ visit our website at uq.edu.au forward slash changemakers where you can also subscribe to Changemakers magazine I'm Belinda McDougall and I'm Katie Rowney Jordan is just one of the many amazing women working in science here at UQ if you're interested in learning more check out our Athena Swan program or search the hashtag UQ Women Create Change If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends or colleagues, leave a review on iTunes or email us at changemakers at uq.edu.au. If you want to create change, tune in next time when we interview another inspiring member of the UQ community. Thanks for listening.